I invite you to turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 21. Chapter 21 is where we're going to spend uh, our time this morning. Uh, you think back over your life and the, the catalog of memories that you've collected over the years. Uh, I would be willing to bet uh, that as you identify your fondest memories, times of the most joy and happiness, the memories that are just uh, delight your heart to this day, many of those, if not most of them, are, are going to play back in your mind with a laugh track behind them. There's laughter. There's just something powerful about being together with the people you love, relaxed and, and, and at peace, overflowing with joy that, that, that bubbles up into laughter together. It's truly a gift from God. It makes me think of uh, Christmas Eve parties with friends and, and family, maybe playing charades together or sitting out in the sunshine uh, on a summer day telling stories of childhood, remembering old friends, um, just goofing off with my kids, saying ridiculous things and, and laughing together. At the same time, if you identify some of your least favorite memories, some of the ones you'd rather forget, memories of shame and embarrassment, um, painful memories, uh, a bunch of those are going to play back uh, with a track of laughter, aren't they? Um, very different laughter. Uh, I grew up with an older brother. Um, older brothers tend to have older friends, and uh, when older brothers and older friends get together, uh, younger brother uh, tends to bear the brunt of that. I, I remember more than once being reduced to tears at the sound of laughter in the background. Um, it's painful. And we come to Genesis 21 this morning. Um, we come finally to the birth of Isaac. We've been looking forward to this uh, for a long time, working our way up to this. And, and here in this passage, we see two very different kinds of laughter happening. And these very different laughters have very different, even uh, eternally different consequences. So look with me, Genesis 21. We're going to look at verses 1 to 21. Uh, I should mention, if you don't have a Bible, um, we want you to have God's Word open on your lap. So if you left it at home, you don't have it with you, just put up your hand, and one of our ushers will grab you uh, a copy of God's Word. Um, we we want to come together to, to God's Word, and uh, we, we come humbled before it uh, together. I don't, I don't bring any great wisdom. Um, I just have this glorious book. Um, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 21. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears it will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. 
And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac your offspring will be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar putting it on her shoulder and along with the child, and he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him in a good, a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true, that it is unchanging in a constantly changing world. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. We are so often slow to listen, hard of heart. God, would you break down those barriers in our own hearts this morning? Would you help us to see uh, the glory of who you are, your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness, to trust in you, Lord. Father, I pray for my words. If there's anything I've prepared, anything that I have to say that is not true to your word that is not from you, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten, that your word would go forth, Lord, and that you would do as you promise and send it out to accomplish everything for which you have purposed, uh, for the glory of your name. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first two verses just set the the tone, set the stage for this chapter, um, stated in such ordinary terms, and yet this is just earth-shattering in in the book of Genesis. This is life-changing truth. The the first thing we have to recognize in this passage uh, is the call to wait on the faithfulness of the Lord, to wait on the faithfulness of the Lord. Looking at these these two verses, you can see the the theme um, pretty obvious in front of you. The Lord has visited Sarah as he said. The Lord did to Sarah as he promised. Sarah bore to Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. God said, God promised, God spoke, it happened. So simple, but so huge, so foundational. And it's easy to see it here at this point. It's easy to grasp it now. Um, Easy for Abraham and Sarah to, to trust in the Lord's faithfulness here. But remember where they've come from. Remember the, the journey that they have been on as we've been following them over the last months. Out of the blue, as Abraham was an idolater in the land of Ur, God 
chose him. God called him. God blessed him. He had promised Abraham that he would make him into a, into a great nation, that he would bless him, that, that through him the whole world would be blessed. This is a, What a shock, what an honor for Abraham to hear that. And, and so with joy and excitement, he sets out and follows the Lord. Um, they believe God. They, they step out in this just eager, starry-eyed, idealistic optimism. We're going to conquer the world with this God. And yet before long, they're idealism is met with a little bit of stress. This famine comes into the land and they doubt God. They flee down to Egypt. They they lie about their relationship. Sarah ends up in Pharaoh's harem. It's a disaster and yet God is faithful. He rescues them out. He protects them. And their whole life is like this. It's just this, this roller coaster up and down and up and down. God affirms the covenant with Abraham, he himself walking between the pieces of the, of the animals. And then the very next scene is Sarah giving her slave girl, Hagar, to Abraham as a wife. God hadn't given Sarah any children yet, and so they're doubting as they wait, and, and it's, it's another disaster. It's terrible. Then God gives this the covenant of circumcision. He says, I'll be your God and you'll be my, my people. And, and it's wonderful. He promises again to give Abraham a son through Sarah. And, and Abraham laughs as he has a hard time believing this. And yet as the years pass by, um, no son comes. And, and now Sarah is not only barren, but she's well past childbearing age. She's old. Once again, the Lord comes to them. This time he, he promises it's going to happen now. He, he comes and has dinner with them and he says, within a year, I'm going to come back in a year's time and you'll have a son. This time Sarah laughed. Really? Dried up old Sarah having a son? God says you'll name him Isaac, which means laughter. Even after that, even with only a year left on God's timeline, they travel then into Gerar and they run into Abimelech and they fall into the same sin that they had in the past. They lie about their relationship and Sarah gets taken again into the king's harem. It's a disaster again. And once again, the Lord rescues them and carries them through. This has been a long and tumultuous road. It has been bumpy and chaotic. Um, there, have been, there have been high points of, of faith and, and optimism, and then there have been these low points of doubt and sin and fear. But God's faithfulness, though, though it's, it's not always been clear to them, it's not always been obvious, it certainly wasn't a straight journey from, from A to B highlighted with these mountaintops of hope and yet equally fraught with these valleys of doubt and disaster. So many times they must have looked at their lives, looked at their sin, looked at their circumstances and thought, this just isn't happening. We've ruined it. We're too far off track. This, this doesn't work. This isn't just unlikely or improbable. This is impossible. God, we've messed this up again. God, you've, you've waited too long. God, there's no way out now. Hope is lost. But all the while, God's faithfulness uh, was never once in doubt, was never once in question, not for a moment. 
the, the fulfillment of, of Genesis 21 was already as good as written in the mind of God long before the promise of Genesis 12. Our, our lives, likewise, are filled with these ups and downs. We have seasons of, of trusting God and, and sanctification and, and things are going great. And, and then we have seasons of trial and hardship and doubt and sin. But the promises of God never change. The character of God never changes. He's, he's faithful. He will do exactly as he promised he would. Now we, we see here with Abraham and Sarah, you know, I can testify in my own life. Some of you, I think, have similar stories. So often the Lord, uh, in his wisdom, sees fit to wait. He holds off. Not just to the point where things seem unlikely, but until they are just downright impossible. There's no way out. Every door seems closed. Every hope seems lost. And it's against the darkest background that, that the faithfulness of God shines through the brightest. Do, do you trust him? Are you waiting on him? Do you know his faithfulness that way? He is faithful. His unwavering faithfulness we see working out right here in, in Genesis 21. But, but this faithfulness, we need to see it is bigger than this. This is not just God's faithfulness giving Abraham and Sarah a son, blessing though that is. But this is God's blessing that, that will reach out to, to all the nations of the earth. This is God's rescue plan working its way out. When Adam and Eve had sinned, they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden by their rebellion against God. They, they put themselves squarely under God's death sentence. And they brought this incalculable brokenness into our world. And at that moment, the Lord promised he would send a rescuer. Genesis 3.15, there will be a, an offspring of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That's coming. His rescuer would come. And, and restore all of humanity back to a, a better than Garden of Eden world. That's what's behind God's promise. As he, as he approaches then Abraham and he tells them, um, I'm going to make you a great nation and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's saying this, this promised rescuer for humanity is coming through your line. That's what's behind the birth of Isaac. It's this breaking through. It's this moving forward of God's promise. He is faithful. His rescue is coming. Are we waiting on the faithfulness of the Lord? And sometimes that question is hard to answer. I don't know. I'm wrestling. My heart's not transparent to me. I don't know that yours is to you. Uh, yes, no, kind of. Are we waiting on the Lord? And I think as we think about that, um, to help us kind of answer that question, we have these two examples that play out now in front of us, uh, characterized by these two very different laughs. Verses 3 to 8, we see this positive example. We're to walk in the faith of Abraham. Abraham is our example here of what, what faith looks like. Look at verses 3 to 8. Let me read them again for us, get them kind of fresh before us. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. 
Everyone who hears it will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Abraham and Sarah have have seen the faithfulness of the Lord play itself out again, and they respond uh, with faith in the Lord, trusting in him. Uh, It's an act of faith that that Abraham names the boy Isaac, just as the Lord has said. He's, He's declaring, this is the child that God has promised. Out of obedience, on the eighth day, he circumcises his son, just as the Lord had commanded Sarah then makes this beautiful statement of of hope and and faith that the Lord is working out his promise. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears it will laugh over me. And of course, this is a a play on words. She's she's making a pun of sorts here. The name Isaac comes from the the Hebrew word shahak. It it means to laugh. And and so this this beautiful reversal, right? What, What could have been to their shame, that both of them in turn laughed as God revealed his promises now becomes the fulfillment of his promise, this truer, richer laughter, a joy, a a hope, a confidence in the Lord, a laughter that that overflows from the the depth of a satisfied soul. And they see and they trust and they walk in the, the faithfulness of God. It's a beautiful picture. This is the way it ought to be. She reminds us, Once again, everyone who hears it will laugh. This is building on that original promise. All the nations will be blessed. God is working out this rescue plan, and it will bring laughter to everyone who who trusts in God. Verse 8, the the child grew up. He was weaned. That's typically about three years old. And and Abraham throws a feast. His, His son has survived those fragile, scary infant years. That was a big deal in those days. And so they have this celebration. Their response to the faithfulness of the Lord is obedience to him and faith in him. And the product of that, the overflow of that is laughter. It's joy. Listen, we live for joy. You get that, right? Like that's That's what drives us. We can't help it. Absolutely everyone does. We were created for it. We, without exception, we seek after our own joy. The problem is we seek it in the wrong places. We were created to find the the fullness of our joy, our, our life in a perfect, complete relationship with our infinitely wonderful, uh, eternally joyful creator God. That should be the source that fills us with joy. And our sin has stolen that from us. The very act of sin is the act of seeking our joy in other things. Turning away from God, breaking that relationship with him, and seeking to be satisfied in things that he's created. Jeremiah uh, 2.13, God puts it this way. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's us. 
That's us. We take our eyes off of God, who is the the overflowing fountain of fresh, clean, living water, and we go hunting for water in these cisterns, these dry, dusty holes in the ground that at best hold stale, stagnant water, but these cisterns are broken. They don't even hold water. That's an offense to God. We run off into the world looking in relationships, in food, in alcohol, in entertainment, looking for what we can only truly find in God himself. And so not only is our sin this this turning away from the fountain of joy, but that turning away then is also an offense to God. It it puts us, it takes us out of the position of being his, his, the, the, the object of his love and his delight and makes us then the object of his wrath. And so God's rescue, beginning with the the promise in Genesis 3.15, playing out through the birth of Isaac, culminating in the life and death of Jesus, is all about forgiveness of sin. It's all about reconciling us back to God, repairing that relationship so that we can once again be restored to the fountain of joy. And just like Abraham and Sarah, We enter into that joy by resting in faith in the Lord, trusting in his rescue. And then we live out, we we exist in the experience of that joy as we walk in obedience, as we walk in faith before him. Old hymn my, my mom used to sing to me and now I sing to my kids when we walk with the Lord. In the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. As we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Simple. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Trust him. Walk in humble obedience before him. That's the way back. That's the way to the fountain of living water as we, as we drink from the fountain. Faith, trusting in him, and walking in obedience. That's how we find our souls saturated with joy once again that, that overflows into abundant laughter. That's the glory of the gospel. God is calling us back to himself. He's made a way that we can be restored to him. Are you you waiting on his faithfulness? Are you trusting in him? And are you walking in obedience? Are you you living the way he calls us to live and seeking after him? Now, before we move on to this point, I just want to stop and and recognize, um, speak to those who would say, yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm trusting the Lord as best I can. I'm walking in obedience, obviously not perfectly, but, but there's nothing I'm holding out on. I'm walking in repentance. I'm seeking after the Lord, and yet this isn't joy. My life hurts. I'm surrounded by brokenness and, and pain. My life is hard. What do we do with that? There's probably a lot here this morning in this broken world that we live in. To you, I would say there's a glorious pro- a promise in Psalm 126. Why don't you turn there? It's going to be on the screen, but turn there in your own Bible if it's in front of you. Psalm 126. I want you to see it on the page of your own Bible. I want you to be able to put a bookmark there and go back again tomorrow or next week. 
Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. Not everybody's on phones. It's good to hear some pages flipping still. Look at these promise. Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out in weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. See the metaphor he's using here? You see the promise that's, that's put in here? If you're in a season of sorrow, a season of tears and weeping and pain and hurt, of, of despair, of depression, what do you do? How do you, how do you carry on in that? How do you... We sow seeds of faith. What does it mean to sow seeds of faith? It means continue to trust the Lord. Continue to faithfully walk in obedience even when it looks dark. Even when you don't see joy and hope, when you see pain and sorrow and brokenness, continue. Continue trusting. When God feels a million miles away, continue in faith. Trust Him. Trust Him in the valley of the shadow of death. And that trusting in him in the time of darkness is like sowing seeds in fertile soil. You don't see it right away. You throw the seed out, it falls in the ground, it's covered, and you wait. And you wait. But he's faithful. He will bring you through. And those who sow seeds of faith in the, in the valley of despair, watering them with their tears... In due season, they will reap a bountiful harvest of joy on the mountaintop of God's blessing. Now, sometimes that joy comes with a new season of life. Things change, circumstances change, the Lord's kindness and, and blessing here and now. That's not always the case. That's not our ultimate hope. Certainly, that joy will come in its fullness when our Lord comes again when he brings his final rescue to completion, when we're brought uh, into the the new heavens and the new earth, that joy, that, that harvest will be there. Wait on the faithfulness of the Lord. Walk in the faith of Abraham. Thirdly then, the way we walk in the faith of Abraham is to withdraw from the folly of Ishmael. Withdraw from the folly of Ishmael. The story takes this abrupt turn here. Um, I don't know if you sensed it. I'm reading through this, and, and, and just it's been building to Isaac for so long, and then it's just a snippet, and, and, and it moves on. You expect to, to, to linger a little bit longer on the faithfulness of the Lord, um, but there's this outstanding issue. There is yet this problem of the boy Ishmael. We read verses 9 to, to 21, and then we'll walk through that. Verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. 
Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for, though I, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation out of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When, she water, uh, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. As Sarah and Abraham are laughing with joy, they are reveling in the, the answer of, of God's faithfulness, the promise of God fulfilled. Sarah looks over to see Ishmael doing a very different kind of laughing. This isn't joyful laughing of delight in God's faithfulness. Um, it's the same root word but a very different form, uh, Ishmael is mocking. Ishmael is looking at the, the faithfulness of God, and he hates it. He despises it. And it's actually fairly easy to understand. Um, Ishmael at this point is not a child anymore. If Isaac is three years old, then, then Ishmael is 16. Old enough to understand he has now been displaced as the heir of his father. Old enough to see that though his father loves him, he is far more excited about this promised child. Previously, in chapter 16, we saw Sarah act out of sin when she sent Hagar away. It was, it was bitterness and spite and anger. But here she's right. The Lord affirms it. He gives Abraham two reasons. First and foremost, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be named. Because Isaac, not Ishmael, is how God will fulfill his promise. And secondly, because God will still make a great nation out of Ishmael. Because of God's love and faithfulness to Abraham, even Ishmael will still pro uh, prosper uh, in a worldly sense. And so early the next morning, Abraham packed up some bread some water, sent them on their way. Now, there's some translation stuff here, and I typically try to spare you from some of the nonsense. There are many scholars who say, look, it says she puts the boy on her shoulder, and I see where they get that. It's awkward the way it's phrased, and they would say this clearly is not a true story. Um, um, maybe we can trust God's word a little more than that. Um, maybe you can look at that and see she, she gave uh, the, the bread and the water, putting it on the shoulder, and gave the boy to Hagar. Uh, and they venture off into the wilderness together. Cast out the spell. And so eventually these supplies run out. Having lost all hope of life, um, 
her son probably leaning on her as they press on, parched through the wilderness. She lays her son down under a bush and she walks away. I can't, I can't watch my son die. Verse 17 says, God heard the voice of the boy. And if you remember, that echoes Ishmael's name, the God who hears. God heard the voice of the boy. The Lord miraculously rescues them. Again, um, promised that he would make Ishmael into a great nation. Verses 20 and 21 um, tell us the, the future of Ishmael. He would grow up. He would live in the wilderness. He would become an expert with the bow. Um, these echo the, uh, the prophecies made about Ishmael from chapter 16, that he would be a wild donkey of a man, living in constant conflict with those around him. He lived in the wilderness. He lived by his weapons. And it's an odd story. Because the Lord rescues them and the Lord is kind to Ishmael and the Lord even promises good things to Ishmael and I think it's easy for us to miss what's happening here. If you look a little more closely, there are some very significant contrasts. There are some crucial markers. Absolutely, God is kind. God is gracious to them. And yet, Abraham names his child Isaac and he uses that name two more times and there's this pun happening off it the the laughter theme runs all the way through the passage but as you read this story did you notice never once is Ishmael's name used doesn't show up not by Sarah not by Abraham not by the Lord he is only ever referred to as the son of Hagar the Egyptian or the son of the slave woman or just the boy and though Our eyes look at verses 20 and 21, and it seems fairly unremarkable. Um, It's significant. Though the Lord is with the boy, um, he grew up not in the promised land, in the wilderness. And he takes a wife, not from the family of his people on his father's side, but from Egypt. He's returned to his Egyptian roots. His future is completely separated from the future and the promise of God. And of course, most significant, the words from verse 12, the Lord says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is the promise, son. Ishmael is not. Isaac is the child of promise. Ishmael is the result of Abraham and Sarah's sin. God's promise didn't seem to be coming not soon enough. They didn't understand. And Abraham and Sarah, then trying to fix this on their own strength, stepped outside of God's design for marriage, brought in Hagar. By their own wisdom, by their own effort, they produced a son. The Lord is making this stark distinction here. There are two ways. There are two paths. Trusting the Lord and doing it my own way. As Ligon Duncan puts it, the loss of Ishmael forces Abraham to stop hedging his bets with regard to the promise of God. That's what I mean by the the folly of Ishmael. Ishmael is this plan, this this hedging of the bets. We've got a a backup plan. If, If a promised child doesn't come miraculously, we've got one our own way. We can get to the to the blessing of God by our own strength, our own wisdom. If Abraham's going to truly trust in God's promise, then he needs to fully withdraw from from the folly of this this plan. 
He needs to give up on on this this backup plan, this lingering idea that, that maybe he can get to God's joy another way. The year 1519 Hernan Cortez landed uh, with 600 men on the coast of South America. They had heard rumors of mounds of gold and rich crops, and, and they planned to start a new colony there. But after the long, hard journey of sailing, after running into hostile natives, many of the men began to doubt and grumble, complain. Plans began to form around mutiny. Let's steal the ships. Let's go back home. Cortez is determined to settle in the new world. And so as his men are scheming in fear, Cortez confidently ventured down to the water, torch in hand, settling the issue once and for all. He lit the ships on fire and burned them to the waterline. There's no going back. Guess we're going to make it work here, guys. We're in. We're all in. There's no plan B. The Lord is telling Abraham, if if you're going to follow me, it's time to burn the ships. It's time to quit circling around with this backup plan. You need to quit dabbling with with one foot in the way of the world and one foot in trusting me. It doesn't work that way, Abraham. You can't say that you're, you're trusting me and my promises when your backup plan is sitting beside you at the dinner table. God's blessing will not come by human effort. God's blessing will not come by our strategies and worldly ways. God's blessing will come through trusting in God's promises. That's why when Jesus came, he looked at his disciples, Matthew 16, 24. So if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. Take up your cross. We we like to wear fancy golden crosses and and, and hang them around our necks. And and, and it's this decorative piece. It wasn't for them. It was a a device of execution. Take up your electric chair and follow me. Jesus is saying, burn the ships. Take up your cross. You want life? You want True life, fullness of life, a life that that overflows to laughter in the Lord, then deny yourself. Cut it off. Give up on doing it your own way. Stop trying to seek your life in this world. Give up your life. And you will find true life, full life in God's blessing. Wait on the faithfulness of the Lord, walking in the faith like Abraham, and withdrawing from the folly of Ishmael. There's no overlap between these two ways. You can't have both. Sometimes they look similar on the outside. Some, sometimes our, our Ishmael plans look like being the best Christian and reading the Bible the most times and, and, and getting as many notches in our spiritual belts. But they're two radically different paths. Trusting in the Lord, looking to Him, waiting on His blessing, or trusting in myself. Seeking joy my own way. In the way of Ishmael, the product of our worldly efforts, it mocks the promise of God. And God will not be mocked. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, and its end is the way to death. 
But it looks so good. Yeah, that's exactly what Proverbs is saying. It seems right. It makes sense. But its end is death. Matthew 7. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who enter it are few. What's your plan for joy? What's your strategy for for satisfaction of your soul? What path are you taking? Trying to find abundant life. Is it going your own way? Is it trying to to squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of the things of this world? Trusting in yourself, looking out for number one, I got to do it, I'm going to be enough. Is it working out your own plans, keeping your your plan B of of success in in your back pocket? Are you trusting fully in the faithfulness of God? Are you looking to his promise? The promise that that started in the Garden of Eden. That God would one day rescue from the the damage and the brokenness of sin. The promise that that was kept to the birth of Isaac. The promise that was fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. His death on the cross paying the penalty for our sin. His resurrection from the dead is this this glimpse and this guarantee of the glorious eternity that's come. There there is a resurrection. Now, if that's new to you, the Lord is calling you. He's welcoming you. Come to the fountain. In fact, he's commanding you, come and find true joy. It's a beautiful thing to be commanded. Repent. Turn from your sin. Give up on going your own way. Trust me. Trust my promises. Come to the fountain of living water. In that moment, you'll be forgiven. In that moment, you'll be given new eternal life. For those of us who come this morning, the Lord has done that work in your heart. You've trusted in Christ. And yet, we're so regularly plagued by the folly of Ishmael, aren't we? We still hedge our bets. We still so easily, even without recognizing it, take our eyes off of the promises of God and and begin to to try to go our own way. Begin to to lean again onto our own plans, looking for for joy and life in this world rather than in the Lord. In the last few summers, I've noticed this happening in my heart. And, And just talking about it with my wife this last week, Um, it's right about this point in the summer I begin to get unsettled. I begin to get frustrated and dissatisfied. Um, Some, my kids might even say, I get grumpy. Um, Why? What's going on? Why why am I having this wrestle? And as I talked it through with with my wife, um, it's this point of the summer when the end of summer becomes visible. How on earth is it August? Summer is disappearing again, and I'm forced to deal with the reality that once again, the, the, the mystical, wonderful promises of summer are beginning to fade. And the promise that it holds of, of rest and refreshment, right? Peace and happiness, life and, and joy that summer's meant to be, it's all fading along with it. And we've 
adopted this little phrase in our home that we often use as a joke, but it stings. Summer has once again failed to satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. It didn't work. And apparently, without even realizing it, I was setting my hope there. This summer, this one's going to do it. Now I'm going to find full rest. Now I'm going to have the perfect summer with my family. And it fails. And that's not a problem unless my heart is set there. Unless my summer had become my God all of a sudden. I turned from the fountain of living water and tried to fill up this broken cistern. What is it that takes hold of your heart? Even good things that when you don't have them, all of a sudden, dad's a little grumpier than he should be. You're just a little on edge. Why? Why does it bother you so deeply? What are the worldly hopes and strategies that you find your heart clinging to? What are the things you want the most? Is it your summer vacation? Is it your job or some future job? Is it your spouse or some hopeful future spouse or your children or some hopeful future children? Is it wealth or comfort or retirement? Is it, is it a couple of drinks after work? Is it just one more show on Netflix or just one more clip on YouTube? This one will satisfy. You can go through a thousand shorts and it just like it never quite fills up. They're broken cisterns. Where do you go when you're thirsty? These things distract us. They pull us away from drinking deeply at the fountain of living water. So are you willing to smash those cisterns? Are you willing to burn the ships? And, and as your heart inevitably builds new ships, you burn them again. That's not at all to say that we don't enjoy God's good gifts in this life. Absolutely we do. But only that, that those things can never be our, our ultimate hope, our, our source of joy. We, we engage in it and we enjoy the things of this world in, in faithful obedience to the Lord, using them how he has commanded us to use them, and recognize that every hint of goodness in them, every hint of rest and life is, is not a sign that we should drill down and focus more here on earthly things and lean into that, but rather it's a glimpse through those things that we lift our eyes from the gift to the giver. Draw us upward, knowing that, that full satisfaction of our hopes and, and desires, the fullness of life and joy and happiness ultimately rests in him and him alone. Listen, that, that perfect summer, it's coming. It'll be there, just not here. When the Lord comes again, it will be rest, endless rest. It will be light, endless sunshine, S-O-N, as we bask in the glory of Christ. We're to wait on the faithfulness of the Lord. We're to walk in faith like Abraham. We're to withdraw from the folly of Ishmael. We're going to close celebrating communion this morning. Roman and Beth, you can prepare to lead us in worship again. If you're not a believer, if you've never deliberately turned away from the things of this world, from, from sin, and put your hope in Christ, then, then this isn't for you. We just ask that you would respectfully observe this morning. If you are a believer, this is meant to be a moment of introspection. This is meant to be a, a time of probing our own hearts, 
reminding ourselves again, reflecting on where we stand before the Lord. Paul warns that to come to this table and partake of this meal in an unworthy manner is dangerous. To come and celebrate communion while we're boarding the ships to go home is to put yourself in danger of the Lord's discipline. Paul says some have become sick and even died on account of disrespecting the Lord's Supper. If we're trusting in the Lord, for those who are struggling and fighting against our own fickle hearts, who are seeing those distractions and seeking to bring them before the Lord, to confess them, to turn away from them again, this is that practice of, of reminding our hearts of where our life truly rests, right? It's it's, it's food and drink. It's coming in to say, Jesus is the source of my life. He's it. And, and, and true joy exists in, in communion, at, at having dinner with my Lord. And he knows our hearts are prone to wander. He knows how fickle we are. He knows we're but dust. That's why he says do this often. And we need that reminder constantly. So take this time to, to check your own heart. What, what ships is your heart building that you just need to burn to the ground once again? And that's why we're told to do it often until he comes. Because that day is coming. And we're to have our eyes and our hearts fixed on that day uh, when he returns. So um, would you stand? Let's sing together as we prepare for communion. Um, as